Hello, lovely people. How are you? Welcome back to the next chapter and what a guest I have for you today. Now, before we start, I have a little favour to ask. If you could subscribe to this podcast, please, and also rate and review it, well, that would be amazing. It's our mission here at Flowerpot HQ to help as many people as possible to start those next chapters that they're dreaming of. And this would really help. So thank you. Now, speaking of next chapters, today I'm going to introduce you to the wonderful David Wilson, otherwise known as Sober Dave. Sometimes it's looking back in, into yourself and saying, is this me then? Is this or is there more for me? And that's what I thought. There's much more to me than this 20 stone man drinking vodka every night. If any of you ever watched 60 Minute Makeover with Peter Andre, you may remember a lovely carpet fitter called David Wilson. But what we didn't see was Dave was hiding a big drinking problem. At one stage, he was drinking a litre of vodka a night. Then one day, when he was 54 years old, everything changed. I'll let Dave tell you what happened, but five years ago, he stopped drinking and he's never looked back. He now has his own podcast, One for the Road, which has around 10,000 downloads a week. He interviews celebrities, world experts, as well as sharing stories of people who've overcome their own struggles. He's also written a best-selling book, has a huge following on social media, and he works as a coach, helping mainly women with what he describes as grey area drinking. Dave believes there's always hope and we do all have the power to make change, but this starts with changing the stories we're telling ourselves. This conversation had a huge impact on me, not just about my own love of white wine, but also my mindset. And now I'm really hoping Dave will help you as much as he helped me. Hello and welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter. Or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here he is, Dave Wilson. Dave Wilson, I am so excited to welcome you to the next chapter. Thank you so much for doing this this Monday morning. It's an absolute pleasure, Ellie, and Monday is now my favourite. They never used to be, but they are now. Well, I can, we will get into this and exactly why, but I don't know if you know the story behind this because your lovely lady Lindsay got in touch with me to talk about the next chapter, but this is really, it was so strange, Shay, because for my next series, this series, I'd, I'd written a wish list of who I would like to come on and I'd been following your work for a long time and you were on it. And, oh. and I was like, oh my, and then she was saying that she thought that you'd be a good fit for my podcast. And I was like, wow, I felt like the universe was sending you to me, Dave. So for many, many reasons, which we'll discuss. So this, it's just wonderful. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Ellie. And I, I have asked um, Lindsay, she's my PR, to to reach out to different podcasts now because I've told my story so many times in the sobriety world. And I feel like I need to spread the message a bit more for people of a certain age that um, to show that it's possible yeah. to change. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I'm here. So yeah. I'm really grateful you've asked me on. Oh, I'm just delighted. And before we get going, and there's a big congratulations to you, because yesterday, we're recording this on the 8th of January, yesterday was your five years of not having a drink, yeah. which is just, 
incredible. So well done. I mean, you just must feel amazing. <laughs> not not all the time. I mean, <laughs> it's not a magic pill, but I, I'll tell you what, I feel a hell of a lot better than I did before. And we can go into those reasons, you yeah. know, because... Uh, yeah, I've ch completely changed my life. Everything in my life is totally different now right. by, by removing alcohol. So we can talk about we that. We can, a true next chapter. So we start as we always do. We begin with the prologue. So you grew up, I think, in Croydon. And yeah. and you said up until about the age of 14, you sort of had, you were kind of like a typical boy. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I was. I grew up um, in Croydon and my mum worked in the local factory and my dad was on the lorries, you know, and there wasn't a lot of money in the house at all. And I remember uh, once I was playing for the school football team, I was only in the primary school, um, a little school called Gonville, and it was a little bit like Little House on the Prairie. It was such a quaint little school and I didn't have any football boots. And I remember uh, my teacher said to me, oh, your mum's at the gate. And I thought, I wonder what she's doing here. And she had a little uh, walrus bag with some plastic football boots in. And I always remember, I was only small. And I thought, oh, my mum's gone to all that trouble um, to get me some football boots so I didn't make a fool of myself on the muddy football pitch in Plimpsoles. <laughs> and that's how grateful I was growing up because we never, we had good dinners and we always had a holiday always probably down in Devon or Cornwall where we sat in the car on the A303 some people might relate to that yeah. you know in gridlock traffic jam <laughs> and uh, it was the small things I remember because I used to wear secondhand clothes and you know that's how I was brought up but I've always been grateful around money mm. um, due to that that upbringing and then I moved to a school called Lamfrank High School and it's quite well known for the air disaster in Croydon because I think it was 1959, maybe, or around that uh, year, their plane crashed into a mountain in Norway and killed all the pupils. Mm. And they had a little memorial cemetery, uh, area in the cemetery there. So I was there for about a year, but then my mum and dad decided to move. So we moved to Carshorton and I had to start school in the second year. And I wasn't a streetwise lad. I was quite shy, quite homely, uh, always tidy. Like my mum my always um, was proud of me for how my bedroom was, which is unusual for a kid, isn't it? Because they're normally a tip. Yeah. Um, and we moved to Carshorton, and that's where things changed after a few months because my mum and dad split up. And I think the move to Car Shorten was that a last chance of them standing together. But at the time, I didn't know any of this was going on because I was just a kid. Yeah, you were right. Doing my thing. And, and before this day, what, I mean, what were you like at school? Did you like school? Were you a good student? I liked primary school. Um, that was great. I was always into my sports. But when I moved to Lanfranc, I've, so I went from a school that was 250-odd pupils to 1,200 Right. And I remember the first day I went there, there was a massive fight in the playground and some nail scissors were pulled out. And it's like I was going to prison when I went to that school. Mm. And when I moved to the next school, I started in the second year. So a lot of um, friendships had been established then. So I walked blind into this classroom and I was petrified. Mm. Uh, and it was quite a rough school as well. And I didn't fit in. So it kind of... Um, 
knocked me back a little bit. But then when my mum left, she she left by actually just leaving me a letter. She didn't explain she was going. It was just a letter on the table. And I didn't see her for a year. And in that year, my dad met someone else. Um, she didn't particularly like my being in the house. You know, she, I think she wanted to spend time with my dad. So I felt quite rejected and alone. So I got on with... Um, the lads of the school that were a bit rough hanging around the shops and that. And that's when I started drinking and that's when my schooling went down the pan because I used to bunk off and I just wasn't into it anymore. Mm. You know, 14 a funny age, isn't it? You, you kind of grow up God, and, yeah. or you're growing up and you've had a lesson and hormones and stuff. So I went off the rails, Ellie. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised, Dave. And also, I'm so sorry for whatever reason it all happened, but... That is, you know, I've got a 13-year-old about to be a 14-year-old son and he's right on the edge of everything and it's tough. It's And I remember what it was like being, th I mean, 13 particularly and 14. And they are, it's a difficult age, no matter the situation anyway. And did you, at that stage, did you ever think about what you wanted to do in life or like what job you wanted to do? Or was it really just a case of like, like you say, hanging out with your mates and just kind of getting through? Yeah, I mean, I was really good at physics, um, like, when I went to secondary school. And um, so I, I was, like, quite mathematical. But I didn't, I didn't really have an idea of what I wanted to do. But when this all happened, it totally went out the window. So I was very much in the moment. And we used to go up the shops um, and, you know, find the change down the sofa or pinch a bit of money here and there, I suppose, from the ashtray. And asked the adults to buy us booze from the off-licence. And we didn't really care about school then. Mm. You know, we, we used to bunk off a lot and it was quite easy and you never got chased up so much. And my dad was always at work or seeing this woman. And I kind of got away with it. So the last thing I was thinking about was a career. But I left school when I was 15 uh, with no... Um, exam results or anything and I, I ended up getting a job in Wimbledon Broadway in a carpet shop which was I didn't even think about what I was going to do it just come up in a job centre and I got a job in there but it was quite um, fun because over the road there was Wimbledon Theatre and that was back in the day of all the loveys and two doors away from the carpet shop was a wine bar called What's It's and used to get people like Oliver Reed going there all, all the people that were actually currently in the theatre and that. So it's quite a kind of wonderful atmosphere. But then I was working with a bloke called John Sadler there, and uh, he he used to make home brew beer. And he used to say to me, oh, come round to mine after work and we can have a drink. And I, like, even then, Ellie, at 14, 15, 16, my drinking was quite a lot. Mm. And I remember going to school with a hangover well I didn't really know what it was back then but you just almost laugh it off mm. but through my teens I was drinking a lot but socializing we could go into a pub without ID and they kind of welcomed you in because all the adults all the grown-ups were there and you felt really like a man being mm. in the pub you know and ordering pints and uh it was quite normal I suppose going through into my 20s as well but it changed later on mm. to something completely different and so were you i mean like from 14 were you drinking pretty much most days no 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 um mainly um at the weekends we would go to a pub 
and hang out there. But we might go up the shops and like get a couple of fosters or whatever because we didn't have the money then. Mm. You know, we just didn't have the money to drink. But somehow, I think I got a job in the local library cleaning or something when I was 15, which funded the drinking then. And I remember even going to a Sutton market and, and buying my first new shirt. And it was a Hawaiian shirt, Ellie. It was yeah, a nothing bright wrong with that, orange. Dave. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but I remember it really vividly. And I, I was walking about with it with my shoulders swaggering, you know, look at my <laughs> shirt. Because so I was always growing up with second-hand clothes and that. So for me to have a new shirt was, I mean, yeah. quite amazing. Well, yeah, I bet you cut, cut quite the dash, I would imagine, in that. Yeah. But, but, um, but, I mean, I suppose, really, what you're saying, that I mean, it wasn't totally out of the order ordinary as and i'm sure lots of people can relate to this that you didn't really know what you wanted to do you went to work you went to the job in the carpet shop there was a great wine bar nearby there was a guy from work you'd go you know and at that age i suppose a lot of us are like that you know it's you, you don't realize do you You don't realize but um and and what i'm curious before we sort of carry on with the alcohol is obviously i know that you worked as a carpet fitter on a 60 minute makeover so that's where yeah. now how did that all come about well when i was working in the shop in wimbledon i used to go out and help the carpet fitters there and i loved it because it was all around wimbledon village uh, and then eventually they left and they got a job in battersea for a guy called uh, uh, ricky bakery had bright orange hair and a bright orange car like a vw beetle <laughs> and it was quite an influential area and so they they offered me a job to be the lad so I got a job there, and that's where I kind of learned my craft there. But we used to work in all the, like, the megastars houses in Hertfordshire and that, so it was a lovely number. Mm. And then gradually throughout my sort of 20s and that, I, I worked for different shops and then went out on my own. And on my website, um, I had where I was locally and whatever, and DIY SOS phoned me up and they said, would you fancy coming on the show and doing a job on there? Wow. Which I did for two days. And I met Nick Knowles and Julia Kendall, which came part of my life later on with 60 Minute Makeover. So then I put that on my website and then 60 Minute Makeover um, had a position for a carpet fit on there. And they phoned me up and asked me to go for an interview. I was petrified. I had to go to the ITV Towers. So I put a nice shirt on, not the Hawaiian one. Yeah. And I went there and I had the interview and I was interviewed by like four girls on the top floor and then I left there and I remember going to Covent Garden and my phone rang about an hour later and they said, oh, um, thanks for coming along for the interview. And that's where everything could have changed because they could have easily said, thanks for coming, but this time round we found someone else. They said, um, we would love you to be part of the show. Wow. But at that time, Ellie, my drinking had spiraled completely out of control. Mm. I, I was drinking on my own indoors. And the first thought I, I had was, oh, my God, how am I going to manage my drinking now I'm doing that? Because you go away for week, weeks on end. You know, you would, you would do Monday to Thursday, go on Friday, and then back the next Monday. Mm. Um, but... As it happened, uh, in the TV industry, maybe you can relate, but drinking was quite a thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really is. It hugely is. And so, okay, I mean, but how amazing that both times they got in touch with you as well. I mean, that yeah. that is amazing, Dave. That is really, yeah. really amazing. And so, 
So going back with the drinking, so at this stage, I mean, I I think I read somewhere, it was sort of in your 30s and like you just said, it it started to get a bit more. And did you live in a, a village? You used to go to a, a pub You used to, and that started to just become more and more of your life. And were you at this stage married, Dave? No, I wasn't married then. So um, I, I was going to a local pub, a Young's pub. Uh, I had a flat in a place called Sutton and... Uh, it, one side was a public bar, the other saloon, so the public bar was full of builders, plasterers, so I was known as Dave the Carpet. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and then they nicknamed me Glugs because I would drink really quickly. But one day, someone said to me, oh, mate, are you, are you an alcoholic? Because you're always drunk, mate. You're always off your head. And it really, because I'm quite sensitive, mm. it really um, had an impact on me. And I thought... I can't carry on like this. So what I did instead, I started to go with the off-licence. I'd have a couple in the pub. So on the outside, I looked like I was okay. Mm. But then I would go in the off-licence and start buying takeouts there and go and drink at home on my own. And then I thought, you know what? No one's watching me. No one's judging me. I can free pour. I can fall asleep. I can do whatever I like. Then I I moved to that village that you said. And... um, that's all I did was drink at home. But it went from lager to wine. And then I started putting on loads of weight. So I did the infamous Google, uh, what alcohol has the least amount of calories. And I put vodka. And I've never been a spirit drinker. I've been quite scared of it. But I thought, Do you know what? I can't keep piling on the weight and I don't want to stop drinking. So I started buying vodka. And that went from half a bottle to a bottle to a litre within couple of months and in the end i was drinking a litre a night oh my god and just blacking out and but i was still going to work um god knows how um and that's when it led on to me being on 60 minute makeover so um i had to adjust obviously the quantity of the vodka but we were drinking in the bars until silly o'clock in the morning because quite often we'd start a hotel and it was a thing, work hard, play hard. I remember we did the Tech Santa Christmas special in August and it was absolutely boiling then. But we were singing Christmas songs at two in the morning with the hotel piano. Everyone was complaining. And but that's the, the life we led at the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah I know it, it. I mean, I know that life. And, and you know, it's part... It's just part of the culture. It's how you are. And, you know, it was it. And drinking at work was a big thing, even like going back to like when my dad went to work, where he worked, that was and they drink all day. You know, some of them would drive home. It was just and, and, you know, then the drink driving did come in. I think that made a bit of a difference. But with the TV world, that was it was a really, really big, big part of life. And actually it was seen as not i'm saying cool but it, you know it's part of it it's the bonding you live yeah. in this high pressure you go and and it's a real team and it's part of the team thing and then you wake up in the morning and you think oh and you're like oh i feel a bit rough and you have your bacon sandwich and that that's all part of it as well it's yeah it was the catering truck and we used to say every morning oh i'm not having a full english but then you felt so rough you'd have a full english yeah. on a little paper plate on the side of the road and that and then you'd work all day on the makeover, knowing you was going back to the hotel, a different one. Yeah. Going sometimes, didn't even have a shower and go straight to the bar. Yeah. And and have a few drinks. And then what I'd do then is have maybe 
a bottle of wine in my suitcase. So if we did have an early one, which was like nine ten, I'd still have a bottle of wine in my room. Mm. So I was proper hooked into it then. Mm. And I remember one morning, um, we did have an early one the night before, and the camera went, Dave, you stink of booze, mate. And I thought, oh, God, I'm not getting away with this because they'd obviously clocked that we'd only had a few the night before, but I caned a load of wine in the mm. hotel room because I just needed it. I was, like, so addicted to it then that yeah, it become to. embodied in my life. And did you think that you had a problem at that stage? Um, deep down? I, I Deep down... I knew I had a problem, but I didn't really want to do anything about it. Nothing had come up in my life that was showing me that it was having a negative effect on my life because I was in this TV show, plastering it all over socials, me and Peter Andre and, you know, doing all these different things. And it was part of the the lifestyle was leading do you know what i mean yeah. and everyone knew me for loving a drink and it was yeah. all part of great it great fun great fun day glugs you know or whatever it is it's all part of it and because i know you've got your son george so did you have george by this stage yeah i had george when i was 30 and um unfortunately that relationship didn't work out um and we separated when he was two but i will say ellie when he came to me. I was his football manager as well. It was a, a real pact that I made that I wouldn't drink, um, and I didn't. And I stayed to that for a long time um, until he got older. But then it started to slip again. And uh, he he might come up and he would go to bed and I'd drink then and then fall asleep and feel terrible in the morning. Um, but he didn't live with me from the age of two. But... You know, me and his mum are good friends now and, and she's brought him up amazingly and we've had the same boundaries around it and he would never come to me and I would have different rules. So there were some standards there. Mm. Um, but I was I would I would like really like play hard when he wasn't there. So it I'd see him every weekend, but he would stay every other weekend. So it was important for me not to be bloody blind drunk when he he stayed with me yeah yeah but also i know dave as well working in the tv industry for all the years that i have that even on that 60 minute makeover you were turning up and doing your job well because they wouldn't have you wouldn't have got away with it so that the effort that that must have taken to that how dreadful you must have felt but to be able to perform and be with a, not just as a great carpet fitter, but in front of cameras as well. The energy that that takes from you as well, I do understand because they they wouldn't have put up with it if you hadn't turned up or if you were just doing a shoddy job. That that you, and if you hadn't been bright and breezy and the, that the persona, you yeah. you couldn't have. That was not an ordinary job. So you were maintaining a, a high level despite what was going on. Yeah, and a lot of us were. But that was part of it, you know. Oh, we've got a big makeover tomorrow. Should we have another one? Go on then. <laughs> you know, and we'd all turn up hanging, but we'd all get on. We were professionals. Mm. And we'd all get on with a job and we'd work really hard. And, you know, when Peter took over, um, it changed from the hour slot to all day. And that was harder because the team got um, less. 
there was less of us to do the job. And there were some days we worked 14, 15 hours when we did a kitchen and stuff like that. You know, a fitted kitchen was involved. Um, and, you know, it's absolutely exhausting um, mm. to work those kind of hours. And then something would come up. There could be a gas check needed or something. And it's hanging around for ages. And your energy levels were all over the place, you know. Mm. Um, but somehow we did it. And uh, in extreme circumstances that tech center was in an old nursing people's home and it was about they had the heating on in there but outside it was like 85 90 degrees mm -hmm. as well we had christmas dinner yeah. <laughs> <laughs> filming with tech santa um, <laughs> i get it i know and it's so bizarre but it's but you're telling yourself as well this is exciting and you've got peter andre there who's brilliant and yeah, and, lovely, and yeah. the whole show and it's tv and you're like hang on you you left school with no qualification here I am I'm in this world and this is uh, you're sort of living the dream really even though yeah. in many ways for yourself it's an, it's an a complete nightmare but the world tells you that that is the glamour that's it you know that's it was it. the glamour it was a lovely few years you know and we had some incredible times yeah. you know some amazing times away in Blackpool and we'd stay there a week and all be in the same hotel it was like a, a party feel you know yeah yeah, um, like and it family. was depressing going back to a normal job because when the season ended and we did the last one and we get in the van and drive off, it's like, oh my god, I've got to go back to real life now. Yeah, and that was really hard as well. Yeah. Yeah, I bet it was. I bet it was. Mm. And it and it feels like when you're away like that, you're it's like a family. It really is like a family. Yeah, it is, yeah. And and again, going back to everything that you'd been through, you were in this world that this was this kind of the answer to everything really and it was in it was in 2019 and so your friend I mean he sounds amazing Piers and and so basically as you said so what yeah January the 7th he suggested to you why don't you have three months off of alcohol and like you said he did it in such a way he clearly was very very worried about you but if he'd said to you, Dave, you need to stop drinking for three months and I'm going to do it with you, and that, that probably would have been the wrong way around it. But he did it with such insight. And and what was it about that, that, that day on January the 7th that you thought, I'm, I know it's not as easy to think I'm not going to have a drink, but what was it that made you think I'm going to try not having a drink? I think what it was, was I have been saying to myself for a long time out loud i've got to sort this out because i had so many rock bottoms and 2018 was a terrible year for me i had a an expensive watch stolen i had a builder take money off me a lot of money as well and disappeared and my mum became ill and eventually died that year and it was just a a catalogue of events that increased my drinking even more and i got to a stage ellie that i was so ill mentally and physically uh, i i got to 20 stone in weight uh, i was on four different medications antidepressants cholesterol uh, i was on statins for that um, blood pressure tablets anti-reflux tablets um, i was in a state um and I was feeling really angry and upset about a lot of things. And I knew I couldn't go on like it. And 
he must have seen me. He was a neighbour up the way. He must have seen me and thought he's not in a good way and he's not judgmental at all. So he could have said, mate, you're not looking great. You need to stop the old booze. And I would have drank more then. Of course you would, yeah. The way, the way he framed it was, why don't you join me? And that's what made the difference. And I spoke to him yesterday. Um, it was my five years yesterday. He phoned me up. And um, I said to him, if you wasn't in that night, my whole life would be different now because I would have drank. Mm. And he said, I made sure I was in. And what do you, you mean, know? made sure? What did you go round to see him? Yeah, he texted me in the morning that, and then I, I burst out laughing because I thought I can't even give up three days. I didn't believe I could. But throughout the day, I started to wonder what my life would look like in the three months. And um, then I said, are you in? And he said, yes. And when, as soon as I walked in, he was just standing very upright. And I said, let's do it. It was like the universe had held open a door for, for 12 hours only and said, you either go through it or you don't. You have the choice here. And I went through it. And wow. since then, everything has changed. And even he said yesterday that if I hadn't gone through that door, I'd be dead by now. Yeah. Because I couldn't have sustained that amount of drinking and my, my food choices and my lifestyle I wouldn't have got me to where I am now. I'd have just had a heart attack, I think. And I wonder what it is, Dave. I wonder what it is that... Because obviously we, we know people who, who do have that opportunity and don't walk through the door. And I suppose we never know, do you? And it's not a, it's not a failing. It's not that anyone's weaker. It's not that. But what is it that that makes you do that? I, I don't know. I mean, do you know? I think you have to be ready because mm. if he had said that a year before, I don't think I'd have been ready. I think you have to be in a place. There's that saying where you say, I'm sick to death or feeling sick to death. Yeah. You know, and I, I think I've reached that place and off the back of my mum dying and, and a series of awful events, I just got to the end of the road with it and I thought, you know what, I... I have to change it. And I also knew there was more to me than just this bloke swilling alcohol down his neck. I knew there was more. And I just think I reached a place that I needed to change because I I knew what was coming if I hadn't have changed. And this is what I say to people, like, just try and explore the idea of taking a break off alcohol because that can be really powerful. It's not say you need to stop. It's explore the idea and maybe take a month off. Like at the moment, dry January, there's a lot of people taking a month off. And I say reevaluate it at the end. Don't just go to the pub on February the 1st and get drunk. Just kind of note down how you're feeling mentally, physically, how your relationships changed, how has your positivity at work changed motivation you know mm. and then you can take it from there mm. and that's all I did for three months but I I will say after six weeks I was walking my dog and I saw the pub that I normally go into in the corner and I kind of had a light bulb moment of where am I going to be in six weeks walking back in there again and that would make this completely pointless this three months and it was then that I decided enough was enough and then I was done I ended the relationship with alcohol right then and there. Yeah. And that, that's what's done it, really. And that, I mean, for the level of alcohol that you were drinking, that, I mean, it's not as easy to say, like, that's it, I'm not going to, you know, on day one, two and three, you know, 
I'm not going to drink. I mean, how did you get through? Because your body must have gone through so much. And just psychologically, I mean, how did you get through those first few days and those first few weeks? I kept busy. Now, I will have to caveat that by saying what I did was quite dangerous. What I should have done was go to the doctors or what I should have done was reduce. But I'm an all enough in person, which a lot of people are. And for me to reduce would have made that last for another few days and I would have probably just carried on. So I I did stop and me and Piers, the guy that texts me, decided to do some training on our bikes in his garage and we we um, went on a like a road thing on his, in his garage, um, turbo train, a rolling road. And we used to do it every morning at six in the morning. And then I started to watch what I had for food. And then in the evening, I would keep busy. I got stuck into a box set, I think, for the first couple of weeks and that. And I would just lay about. But also, I was still in the carpet game then. And I had a physical job. So I would graft all day long. So I think my symptoms were reduced that rather than if I was just sitting about, I would, mm. I would sweat it all out, you know. Mm. And then... I start to see changes quite quickly. I suppose after a week or so, my anxiety reduced and I looked in the mirror and I was a bit more rosy-cheeked and I started to sleep better and feel better. So it encouraged me to carry on. And that's what I did. And I, I read, I met a few people in the community. I went to an event and, I, and then I started posting on social media. And I think because I'm a bloke, of a certain age with an accent, <laughs> but you know, the rough diamond, but they, <laughs> they really took to me cause I'm always very honest about it. And mm. I started getting messages saying, oh, I think you're amazing. I wish I could stop drinking. And that really encouraged me because I was saying, well, you can, if that's what you want to do. Mm. And that encouraged me to get more involved in the community and then it went on from there. You know, I, I had my account on Instagram and then I one day I got up and I thought, do you know what, I'm going to do a podcast. And you know what, that's like, Ellie, it's not something you can just do that day, is it? No, it's no. not a preparation. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had my first guest on and it went to number three in the Apple that's charts. Amazing. My podcast is like, yeah, what's going on here? Yeah. That is just so good. And just, just before we get into that, that so going back, and sorry to keep talking about, but just for somebody who is listening, who sort of feels it is impossible, but you must have had like terrible cravings. And, and especially, I mean, how do you cope with the like tsunamis? I, I can imagine is that how did you cope with that when, you know, you were doing it on your own? I know you had your friend Piers, but those that in the evening or when you would normally have, how did you get through that? Well, by keeping busy, keeping my mind busy, because otherwise you're just sitting thinking about it. And they don't last forever cravings. So I found uh, eating early helped um, because it balanced out your blood sugar levels. And by occupying yourself, so it could be going to the gym or having an early bath and reading or listening to something positive like a podcast and that just diverted my mind away from the craving to drink. Mm. Um, the first week was harder because I was withdrawing off the alcohol so I drank loads of water but I just got through it I made it a non-negotiable and I had to promise myself I could commit to this three months because peers had reached out and I thought you know this is an opportunity so you know I had to put things into place 
and it lasted two hours basically and it got to say half eight and I, I felt like I was over that and then I could say that's another day yeah. and, and it's like building a house of cards the first two or three rows you don't mind if the, they get kicked over but after that you're more protective mm. so I got to a week and then my first weekend then I did my second weekend then I did a month and it's like, God, I can't believe I haven't had a drink for a month. And that inspired me to carry on. Mm. And it went on like that. And then when I did the three months, I said, right, you know, I had that moment of the six weeks. I'd already made my mind up, but I got, I finished the three months and Piers said to me, so where are we? I said, made my mind up six weeks ago. And, you know, being part of the community helped because... Community is so powerful. Talking to people, like-minded people who are going through the same thing is like gold dust because it's not something we shout to the hills. You don't go to the school drop-off in the morning with your makeup on and your, your new coat going, oh, yeah, I had two bottles of Prosecco last night. I feel really rough. You keep it to yourself, don't you? Mm. But if you can find a community that you can admit where you are with it and talk openly it's like a huge weight off your shoulders mm. and that's what I found and it really helped me mm. and did you find because presumably a lot of your social life was had been well I mean all your social life had been around drinking and going to the pubs with your mates and that kind of thing and how did you find that did you did you ch end up changing your f friends as such uh, or did you just do different things with your friends how did that work yeah, well, at first I tried to do the same things, but it didn't work. I mean, I remember going to um, a free bar party in a pub and I thought I could handle it and I couldn't. So after an hour I left, it mm. was terrible. But gradually I realised I didn't align with that lifestyle, but I was meeting new people in the sober community, so we had a different lifestyle. So yeah since I've stopped drinking. Oh, it's a cliche, oh, we'll go and climb a mountain. But I have, mm. two. Mm. Um, but I've done um, cycling events um, and I've done all kinds of things. I've held socials myself. And now I, I, I know you have your lifetime friends, which I still see, but most of my friends don't drink now. Mm. Um, and that's how I like it because I don't want to sit in a pub on a Saturday afternoon getting drunk and I don't feel comfortable doing it now I don't drink because to me it's boring mm. so I do different things now so I've kind of shaped my entire life in a different angle to suit me uh, even where I live now is in the middle of nowhere which is wonderful mm, yeah. <laughs> I, w I wouldn't have imagined that before because it wouldn't be near the pub yeah of course it is <laughs> and and also silly things like if you want to go out at night you can drive and whereas yeah, before yeah. you'd want to be somewhere you can walk because you want to walk home from the pub. So it just t completely opens up your life. And so then, so you then trained as a coach. So you are yeah. a grey area drinking coach. Now, first of all, because, I mean, lots of, you know, you could have just given up alcohol and then carried on as a carpet fitter and, you know, great. But what was it that made you decide to go into the coaching? Well, when I was drinking, um, I always wanted to be a therapist. I've always had that brain of, of working out how we think and how we feel our emotions. And so I did two years at a college in London, uh, level two, level three, and I absolutely loved it. But the, at, towards the end of the second year, my mum died 
and I just wasn't doing my homework and mm. I just had to bail out of that. So I always had that training behind me. But when I stopped drinking, I did a 16-week peer mentoring uh, course in Clapham in a drop-in centre. And that was an incredible experience because these are people that could hardly go through breakfast without drinking. So it's the real raw end of addiction. Mm. And then um, I did a, a grey area drinking course, which I didn't really know what it was. Um, once I found out, I thought, you know, that's something I can do. And I, I qualified to do that. And then I, I did um, uh, a mental health first aid course. And but I found the education really helpful for me, knowing more about the addiction. And now I help people, mainly women actually, um, try and help them with their relationship with drinking. And it's ramped up since lockdown because, I mean, let's face it, Ellie, mm -hmm. it was boiling hot in the March when we went in lockdown, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And there were loads of uh, videos on Instagram, Facebook of drinking wine in the afternoon. But when we come out of lockdown, the alcohol gripped them. And I, and I, some people that had mugs, they were blowing, pretending it was tea and it was wine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were people coming to me saying, I, I, you know, I'm really struggling being at work because by two o'clock I fancy a drink and I don't know what's happening. So I do that. Yeah. And I, I love, I've changed career now and I do it full time and I absolutely love helping people. Um, and I've seen great results as well because, mm -hmm. I am what you get kind yeah. of thing. Well, I know because I, I've been following you and I see and I see and I see the comments and how you are. But but for someone listening to this, Grey, I mean, what? how do you describe grey area drinking? Well, before you would say, if you've got a problem with drinking, the first line you would say, are you an alcoholic? Mm. But you don't have to be an alcoholic to have a problem with drinking. And I hate that label anyway. But... Grey area is the bit in the middle. So it's you're not someone who can have a glass of sherry at Christmas and not touch it until your birthday. And you're not someone who relies on alcohol every single day where you're dependent on it, that if you was to stop, you would have um, the shakes and you would need medical assistance. And that could mean that you're having two or three glasses of wine with dinner every night or you might not drink all week and you binge at the weekends, it's that kind of level of drinking. So it's the, the area in between. And there are millions of people in that area, men and women, mm. that can identify that. And it also removes the stigma of you thinking you're an alcoholic. Um, and there is a big stigma around that of the bloke under a bridge with a brown bag, you know. And I always say to people, it's not how much you drink, it's how it makes you feel. How does your drinking make you feel? Are you anxious? Are, are you sleeping badly? Are you feeling that your moods are changing after a couple of glasses of wine? Are you feeling like you're drinking a bottle of wine a night and then you're starting to think, oh, I'll just have one out of the second bottle because that mm. can escalate to drinking two bottles a night mm. really quickly. All these different questions that you ask yourself without going down the road of, am I an alcoholic? And it's not too late to sort it out. You mm. know, there are many things you can do to nip it in the bud. And that, and that's what I help people with. Mm. Well, I am 100% a grey area drinker, <laughs> <laughs> which is why I've been following 
your work and I've been thinking because I, I listened to you as well on the podcast um, Club Sober I like that I like that one and about Sober Curious and I would definitely describe myself as Sober Curious shall we say for quite a long time and yeah. I am classic you know and I've reduced my drinking my husband and I both have whereas we'd start drinking perhaps on a Wednesday and then it's, so now I very rarely I don't drink till a Friday but and I run every day and you know do all that but on a it's so easy for those glasses of wine to slip into a bottle of wine and like you say oh i just have another one so it's actually it's yeah. easily a bottle and a half and by the time you've done that three and then sunday lunch or not sunday lunch but early evening dinner and actually because i drink this large amount i actually don't feel i don't i don't feel that bad but obviously i do feel that bad because then and i was it was really interesting i was listening to the interview you did with caroline who is the narcissistic abuse expert oh yeah Strawson yeah and she was describing how uh her days but how like on the outside she was you know the full of beans and she'd and just great and looked great and amazing but on the inside she was feeling awful and I actually think and that really made me question myself as well but the the truth is because I do have like a, a heaviness uh you know and that that sludge and I'm mm. trying to do with my you know I'm trying to feel competent with my books and writing get myself out there but I've that that heavy that voice that that weight and i and i i know it can be all different things but i'm really starting to see the effect that alcohol plays into it even if it's the self-trust thing isn't it that you think okay i'm only going to have a couple of glasses of wine actually i had a whole bottle and you yeah. you lose your self-trust and you don't believe yourself in other areas it it feeds into so many different areas of our lives doesn't it yeah absolutely and, and then comes the hiding because you're embarrassed that actually you're drinking a little bit more and then comes the shame from the hiding because you're yeah. being deceitful yeah and and you know i remember claire pooley wrote in her book she she's been on my podcast and she said she used to hide the bottle in the wine in the cupboard beyond the cookery books and that and have secret and she'd say she would never do that in real life you know it's but it's the addiction of it it's mm. like you you crave it, you want it, you, you know, there are a lot of people now that are so overwhelmed in their life, there's a million things to do in the day, and that wine is the switch off, isn't it? Mm. It's like, oh God, I need a glass of wine, and it's so everywhere you look now, all the films, all the soaps you watch, it's just drinking, drinking, mm. drinking, the birthday and Christmas mm. cards, the memes, the advertising, On in, you walk in the supermarket, and the first thing you see is Bailey's or wine, 25% of you buy six balls. So it's it's drip fed into you constantly mm. that alcohol is a relaxant. It helps you to unwind. Mm. And we then believe that there's nothing else that we can do to unwind. We just think without it, we're losing rather than gaining. Yeah. Uh, and that that's how I was for decades, really. Like life looked boring to me and who would I be if I didn't drink? And it's quite often the opposite when you stop these things. I've got more friends now than I've ever, and real friends as well, than I've ever had in my whole life. Mm. The people before were mainly beer buddies, really. Mm. And it's the opposite to what I thought it would be. I thought I'd have no friends. Mm -hmm. And and what would you, I mean, what would you say to somebody who, like me and other people who are listening who maybe don't even drink as much as me, but, you know, they don't hide the alcohol. They really don't hide it. 
but they are concerned about how much they're drinking and you know like you say that that feeling of a really you know there is so much pressure and the overwhelmness and and it's like you have that glass of wine and it softens you doesn't it you know it's it's that feeling that oh you breathe out that's sort of now and and then maybe when you see friends it's a bit of a bonding thing isn't it and you you open up a bit more than you normally so it's it in one mind you're thinking this is a good thing because it softens it's relaxed it's bonding but I think probably what you would say is actually but if you keep a bit like what Caroline was saying if you're really truthful about that relationship because it might give you that but it also gives you the hangovers it gives you the anxiety it's not a it's not a one-way giving thing is it it takes from you so to get that softened feeling to get that feeling that I mean what would you suggest to somebody to do to be able to have that I think you should take a month off as an experiment and see how you feel in that month because if you really start to miss it and crave it then it kind of cements the fact that you may have a problem with it and explore how you feel and like that's why i suggest journaling as well is writing your feelings down and then you can use it as evidence and data at the end of the month and then you can think well I either try and reduce at the end of it. I've got my own theory on moderation, but not everyone listening to this podcast will have that problem with alcohol. They might just have got into the habit of drinking a bit much. So if you can reduce and think about your units, which are 14 a week, then try that. But I think taking a break gives you the opportunity to to see where you are with that relationship. Otherwise, you just carry on. Mm-hmm. And you know what it's like? You might say, I'm not going to drink in a week, and you do the Monday and Tuesday. And by the Wednesday, you think, oh, I've been really good last couple of days. I could have a glass. Or someone might be going for a drink after work. Oh, yeah. sod it, I'll have a glass. And then Thursday comes, you think, well, I've blown it this week. I'll start again Monday. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you get on that hamster wheel, don't you? Yeah. And it, I think if you make a month a non-negotiable and then you can really identify where the issues are that come up for you and then you can work out if you have got what you might construe as a problem and then you can make a plan after that. Mm. Do you think it is possible to drink in moderation, healthily? I think if you've never had a problem with alcohol, you can. But everyone I speak to has had a problem, so I'm a bit biased with it. Yeah. You know, there's a whole thing in it. You can turn a cucumber into a pickle, but you can't turn a pickle back. <laughs> yeah, it's so right? true. Yeah, yeah. but it, it, if, you know, if... And another question I ask as well, can you have one or two glasses of wine and then have a cup of tea for the rest of the evening? Mm. And a lot of people say, no, not really. I just want another glass of wine. Mm. And then you realise you have got a problem then because once it gets older of you, you want to carry on. Yeah. So there are things you can do. Um, and I always say is moderating is agonisingly hard work because yeah. you're constantly thinking about not doing something that you want to do and your brain is telling you it wants as well so for me it's a lot easier to just cut it out yeah than to negotiate with it because it is a, an incredibly addictive drug um and there's millions of people all over the world who are addicted to it yet it's sold wherever you look and it's the only drug you have to justify not having yeah 
Yeah, yeah, it's so true. In fact, I've seen one of your one of the women that contact you know that you're in contact with and saying that. Uh, and I sort of follow them as well, saying that the amount of energy you spend, you don't realise it. Think, oh, OK, I will have it. No, I won't. No, I won't have it. Yeah, actually, I will. I will. I won't. Whereas if you just say, I'm not going to. And also, like you were talking about earlier, the build up effect of not drinking gives you such a boost. And I loved the interview and you reposted it of Tom Holland, the actor yeah. on Jay Shetty's. And I'd never heard it spoken about like that, where he decided he would do dry January and kept thinking about it and asked if he had a problem. But they talked about how you should replace it with something else. You know, don't just see it as a loss. So, he, yeah. you know, he has non-alcoholic uh, drinks and he goes out with friends, but what he's replaced it with is feeling so great. So actually yeah. no drink is ever worth, like what you're saying, just... He just and he his work is better, his life is better, everything's better, and it's it's realizing actually you've gained, you haven't lost, you've gained a load. You gain everything, and this. But when we're drinking, we always look at the loss, yeah. and this is why you need to do this experiment and think to yourself, look, I won't ever find out unless I give it a chance. So there's no good saying I won't drink tomorrow and having no plan. You've got to have a plan. And you won't find out how good you feel unless you take a bit of time off as well. Yeah. And it could be any time. You don't have to wait for, like, dry Jan or sober October. You can think, you know, if you've got holiday coming up, the, the common thing is, how am I meant to not drink on holiday? Well, I've had a few holidays now, and they've been the best holidays ever. And I've got on the plane at the end, and I've gone, I feel so great, rather than I need a holiday to get over that holiday. Yeah. You know? That's so true. Uh, it's so true. Uh, and yeah, it's so true. And you probably don't have the dreaded going back to life either. Like we talked yeah. about earlier, I'll like go back to normal life because for you now, normal life is something you love. I love, but also I, I feel completely different as well. So when you've got all the, you know, like the highs and lows of alcohol, you get the, the immediate highs when you have a drink, but you get the real lows in the morning. So on holiday, you start drinking earlier than you normally would. So the dopamine levels are going up and down, up and down, up and down. And then you realise real life is the reason why you probably drink in the first place. So when you go back and the mat's full of brown envelopes and you've got work on the Monday and you're going in, you think, oh, God, back to reality. Well, if your reality is that bad, maybe look at changing it. Yeah. And that's that in a nutshell, you know, and you can. Yeah by taking the booze out and I honestly I it's the best thing I've ever done but five years ago I wouldn't have believed I would be here now but I took a chance on myself by taking that break and I'm the biggest advocate in the whole world for saying if there's someone listening to this and they're wondering about their own drink just give yourself an opportunity mm. A month out of your life's not a lot, you know, and you can really like raise awareness in your life of where you are and maybe life's not so overwhelming. That again, the opposite. I always say it's the opposite. You're quite often overwhelmed because you're always firing at fifty percent if you've been drinking. Not even that sometimes. So when you're firing on all cylinders and you've been to the gym and you're eating good food and you're having sleep and your mental health and your anxiety is better, of course you're going to mm. feel better. Mm. And then things, you manage life easier. 
Mm. And then you feel you don't need the booze. Mm. I can see you thinking there. Oh, I am. I'm completely, I completely am. And also, but this is a kind of the work I'm doing here with the next chapter, going back, because actually I've also heard this said as well, that, you know, the alcohol is, is obviously the problem, but it's never all the problem. The reason why you drink is the, is the problem. And yeah. so, and whatever that is, you're hiding from or numbing or dissociating and all of that. And it's like you say that life, if your life, and that's what I'm trying to do in my own very small way here on the next chapter is speak to so many different people that I, I honestly do believe in this world in, today, in our country where we, we live for most people you there's so many podcasts there's so much out there if you really need to change your life in some way you can and there's yeah. answers you can but it's having the honesty and having the clarity of what's wrong in the first place and actually alcohol doesn't give you that clarity because it just takes you away from the problem isn't it so Dave, uh, 100%. I, I could talk to you for about three weeks so I, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I am conscious of your time but it's just, it's just amazing and I, I hope we will talk a lot more about this because I just think this is the kind of thing that stops people living these lovely lives because they can't get to the they can't get to the root of the problem anyway so i mean for your two to be continued you're doing so much what what would you like to do next well that's a good question actually because i've written a book and the irony of that was um i always used to say i could write a book about this one day when i was drinking that was my mantra yeah and i have uh, and and it did really went to number one bestseller on Amazon, right? But the hardest thing that I did was do the audio book because that nearly killed me. I mean, that's amazing. It was so hard to do, and my podcast carries on, and I've got some incredible guests on there, and I've done uh, a mountain in the pool last year, and I did Morocco as well. This year, I'm just leaving the door open to life, and I'm going. Do you know what? I've got a big talk in Spain in September, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, I'm leaving the door open, Ellie, and I'm going to just let it come in. And do your coaching. Trust the universe, do my coaching, um, and just let it come in. There's no agenda this year. I've done enough at the moment, and I just think, trust the universe and see what comes in and be grateful for that as well. And that's how I feel. There's no plan. It's just, okay, let's see what happens, and I feel happy about that. It's amazing. It is totally amazing. I mean, your and your podcast. You know, you're getting like ten thousand downloads a week. Or it's Dave. It's huge, and it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, there was a calling for you with television and broadcasting with those with them getting in touch with you. I mean, there definitely was, um, and and that you communicate it all so well and in such a unlecturing way as well because I think that's where like you said if peers had come in and given you a lecture you you know how it how it all works why was it so hard to do the audiobook because I'm not a reader um and uh, you know I never have been I struggle and there's the whole you know everyone's heard all oh, got ADHD but there is a big link with that and addiction um because you're restless and overthink and you know i'm someone that read a chapter of a book and w- wouldn't have a clue what i've just read so for me to read my own book over two days in the studio i i was actually got to points where i sounded drunk where i was slurring my words because my concentration was so intense that i had to keep doing it over and over and over again but I had to get the tone of it right as well. I couldn't just read it like I was reading the paper because it's a sensitive subject around alcoholism and that, you know. So I came out of that studio after day two and I was absolutely exhausted. But it's out now and it's doing really, really well. And I think 
people have said to me, oh, I could listen to your voice all day and, and because of the podcast. And I'll tell you where that comes from with the podcast is that I learned with my counselling that listening is a great skill. And I learned the skill of listening. And with my guests, they have a story to tell. So if I were to interrupt that story with my own agenda, it would just ruin it. So I just sit there and allow the space for them to tell their story. And quite often at the end of it, they say, do you know what? That's the best therapy session I've ever had. <laughs> and quite often they are when you don't say anything because you allow the space for them to, to speak, you know. Mm, yeah. um, and I, I, I really, I'm so proud of my podcast. I love it. And I get the odd specialist on. I had um, uh, Dr. Rebecca Lewis talking about the menopause one week because that's a massive subject. Mm. And, you know, Professor David Nutt came on. But I, in general, it's life stories and, and people like to hear them because they can relate to them. Yeah. No, um, it's and that, that's weekly now and uh, yeah I, I really love it Ellie. Mm, mm, mm. It's, br it's just brilliant and it's it's just yeah you do it in such a good way and so thank you because I, I, I really appreciate it I really really do for your acknowledgements on the subject of appreciation who are the people you'd like to thank who have helped you along the way well obviously Piers um, because he was the first person that um, put the idea in my head um to, to look at my life and my relationship with alcohol. But there were so many, Ellie. My, my friend Johnny Lawrence, you know, I met him um, through the sober community and we've done the mountains mm. and we've, you know, I've gone through tough times, he's gone through tough times. We've got that real brother relationship now and he's down in Cornwall and there, there's so many, Ellie, honestly. There's, a, there's so many amazing people in my life now mm. that... I, I can't keep things about to thank, you know. Mm. Um, it's an amazing community and a really supportive community. Um, and I have a lovely girlfriend now that's two years sober and she's she's really supportive with everything I do. Um, all the guests on my podcast, we've stayed in touch. I did one recently and I'm doing a talk at the end of the month in Sussex as well with him and Ollie Ollerton from SAS Who Dares Wins. Like my whole world has opened up to all these opportunities, but they're not a chore anymore. They 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 are so amazing. You know, to be on a stage talking, uh, sharing my journey mm. is is it's just a fantastic life I have now. Um, and I want to thank my little dog who's in the next room <laughs> that she hasn't barked on this podcast She's as well. Brilliant. Uh, my dog, Cookie, is out there. She's making a real racket, but I don't know if you can hear her, but she's ch chatting oh, away to herself. But she's, well, anyway, I'll go and see her in a minute. Do you, do you ever get a wobble now? Do you ever get your days where you, do you ever, does it ever come into your mind? You think, God, I, you know, I could do with a drink. I I don't have that feeling I can do with a drink. I romanticised it um, the other week, actually. I was in a place in Lincoln, and I walked down the cobbled street Saturday afternoon, and there's a gorgeous little pub on the left, and it had twinkly lights, and there were a couple in the window. She had a glass of wine, he had a pint, and it's about one o'clock, and I romanticised the idea of it because what I've learned to do now is to think that's normal, it's like when you separate from someone you've loved for years and you might see them in the high street and, and you have that pang of, oh, God, you know. 
and and it lasted for about half an hour and I've got over it. But I ended my relationship with alcohol a long time ago. I just cut it dead and I thought I can't, I almost blocked it out of my life. But I was aware that every now and again, it would just pop up again. Mm. And it has, you know, like there were themes, aren't there? Like what I said earlier about holidays or Christmas, you know, you see people go into the pub lunchtime and you think, oh God. But then you, like, I'm really good at reminding myself of the reality of where that took me. So I'm very real. It's like when people say, oh, I I would love a glass of wine on a Friday night. And I say, a glass or a bottle? Yeah. Because that's the reality of it. And I'm I'm very good at reminding myself of where I got with it. And now I almost look at it like I'm allergic, like a nut allergy, that if, if I was to have alcohol, it would kill me. Yeah. Because if I did, I don't think it would just be the one. I think I would go mad, so I'd just stay away from it. Yeah. And I'm happy with that. I acknowledge it still. Mm. I'm not complacent. No. Because you can get in, in trouble with that then. So Yeah, it goes back to what you said earlier about the house of cards. You look what you've built up now. I mean, you've got a whole mansion. And, you know, if you woke up thinking that you'd knock that down... Oh, that'd be so, you know, you've just done so well. And also, I suppose, as well, with the community and all the people that you you help, you probably feel a responsibility. And that's that's no bad thing. I feel, I feel accountability, but I, I, I think everyone would be lovely, but I think it would be me that I would let down. Mm. And that's important for me to know that. It's mm. not, oh, I can't drink because of what everyone would think. It's more like, how would I feel? Mm. I would be absolutely devastated. Yeah. beyond belief yeah. you know i've worked really hard at this and it's not all my achievements it's it's my quality of life now which is the main thing for me of when i wake up on a monday morning where before i was full of absolute dread for the week i just wanted to put the duvet back over my head now i feel excited what the week might bring mm. And it's my nervous system is completely balanced where before it was either really high or really low. There was no in between. So I, I kind of have peace of mind. And, you know, I say about my dogs, his little gorgeous chihuahua that looks like a cat. But where I live, there's some beautiful woods around the corner. And I took her for, well, I dragged her. She didn't want to get out of bed this morning. But seven o'clock this morning with my head torch on, and I, I took her on probably a three-mile walk. And I was like, God, this is absolutely stunning. And if back in the day, I would have been hideous, acid reflux, being sick, mm. worrying about my breath, worrying about driving to work in case got pulled over, mm. worrying about customers looking at me thinking, God, he looks terrible. It's These are little differences that all add up, you know. But mm. throughout the day, your mental health, and then, you know, for me, it got to one, two, I think, oh, I could drink tonight. Mm. Well, I promised myself I wouldn't in the morning. Yeah. Four or five, I'm in the shop buying it. Six o'clock, first drink, and I'm saying, I love you. Yeah. See you later, reality. Yeah. But by eight o'clock, I'm drunk, irritable, restless, because I'm here again. Yeah. Who wants to live like that? Well, it's like you described it with Caroline. I've heard you describe it before, you know, just Groundhog Day. You just... You know, and this is the, that feeling. And, and just, well, I mean, just to finish off, like, you know, to we end with sort of advice. And obviously you've given so much advice with guarding alcohol. But I do think 
a lot of us feel and it's not and um, let's just move alcohol aside just for a moment but there is a feeling of a stuckness you know um and again this is what a lot of what this podcast is all about a feeling of feeling trapped even or um yeah just as stuck because you keep you think do you know what i know i need to make a change but I don't know what the change is and I'm going to do the and here we are another year's gone by and nothing's really changed. So if someone's listening to this who feels like that, what would your advice because you I mean when you think about go back to you when you were 14 years of age you started hanging out with those the boys at the, you know and you weren't interested in school and you loved your physics but when you think now what you're doing with the podcast is amazing success uh you're living a lovely quality of life you're healthy the blood pressure's gone all of it i mean you just couldn't it's incredible you've written a book you've narrated it you've done it i mean it's just beyond wildest dreams so you know anything is possible but if someone is feeling stuck and thinks yeah well it might be for dave but not for me what would you say to that person i would say um try and change the story because we all buy into the story that we can't do this we can't do that and i think that's what i did that day on the 7th of jan 2019 was be open to changing the story and that is by stop telling yourself you're limited because we're not and we could do whatever we like if we put our mind to it and that's what i did and when you start on like day one, whatever it is, whether it's giving up caffeine, whether it's taking a break from sugar, whether it's starting a yoga class, whether it's doing an evening class or or doing some watercolours or whatever, it's like just be open to make some changes because we get stuck, don't we, in our routine. Like there are a lot of busy mums now and they've got um, ballet classes for their kids, football, then they they got work and then they got shopping. they got a million things that are overwhelming. And in my case, it often leads to the wind down is alcohol. But change routines, like maybe make a plan of how the next month can look, how you can change it. Find some time for yourself. A lot of people, they say, oh, it's impossible nothing's impossible try and change the responsibilities in the household like little tiny tweaks over the next month and work on that because Mm. we all get stuck now don't we we're all in our routine that we feel like we can't get out of and we can but you need to be open for change do you think as well, Dave, just to finish off, I mean, that day when you went into Piers' house and how you, there was a, I mean, I've just, I've just been listening to an amazing book. I don't know if you've come across it, Richard Schwartz with No Bad Parts. The whole point is that we lose our sense of self and you and all our different parts, there's no bad parts and they're all there for different reasons, but it's that sense of self. And in that day when you walked into Piers, you, when you described it earlier, you, you despite everything, you it sounded to me that you did still have a glimmer of that sense of self, of you knew something had to change, you were still there. And do you think that's the same for everyone really? And it's actually having a bit of honesty with the self, with your own self to say, you know, I am still here and what is it that I really want? You know, what is it I really, really want? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, I, I did a podcast with Marissa Peer, who's oh, a, yeah. a global speaker. She's amazing. She's amazing. And she came onto my podcast. And her main theme is 
we don't feel enough most of the time. You know, we don't feel enough for ourselves because we get so wrapped up in life, don't we? And we let our own selves go and we don't believe in ourselves and we might put a little bit of weight on or might still smoke or have too many coffees in the morning and we we just go with the flow of life we just tick along and it sometimes it's looking back in into yourself and say is this me then is this or is there more for me and that's what I thought. There's much more to me than this 20-stone man drinking vodka every night. And that really, really encouraged me to look inside myself and almost give myself a slap and go, sort yourself out, mate. And as, you, as you've heard in the podcast, that everything has changed for me. But it's opened a million doors to other things as well, like, my own self-belief and, and my boundaries have changed as well. There are a lot of things I don't do now that I would probably do if I was drinking because I'll just go along with it. And I was a people pleaser as mm -hmm. well. Um, and I don't people please anymore. And and there were, and one thing I did agree to was this lovely podcast because <laughs> I wanted to do it with you. Oh, well, look, Dave, I am so glad you did. I hope we can do more because I just think there's so much more um, to do. But thank you so much for being honest. Thank you for being you. Thank you. You did have so much more and look where it has. It's, and, and I'm so lucky to have you here. So thank you for being such a wonderful guest and for helping us all so much. Oh, I've really enjoyed it, Ellie. Thank you so much. So there you are. I mean, wow. I love this conversation so much. It really, really made me think. I actually recorded it a few weeks ago and I didn't drink for several weeks after. And it really has made me completely rethink alcohol and white wine. But that is another story. But anyway, here now, what next? Well, look, I'm going to take this. It's time to change our story. I fall into the trap and I'm wondering if you do too, because I think we all do to an extent. We think it's impossible to make any changes when we feel so overwhelmed and trapped. But as Dave says, anything is possible. It's all about making those tiny little tweaks. Now, to find out more about Dave and his wonderful work, the link is in the show notes. You can keep up to date with me and my books at elliebarkerwrites.com. And if you're new to my work, well, I describe my books as fiction therapy. They're cosy romances, but they all have a therapist in them based on years of my own fascination with mental health. They also, spoiler alert, all have happy endings because just like Dave, I think there is always hope. Now, this episode is brought in partnership with the boxing charity Empire Fighting Chance. They are working tirelessly to change the lives of young people and help keep all our teenagers safe. The link is also in the show notes to learn more about their work in case you would like to support them too. So I'll be back next week. But in the meantime, come on, let's change our story. You know the one. I think you can do it. And Dave does too. Speak soon. <laughs>